0: These remain standing for the reading of the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 2 verses just verse 5 through 9. Again, God's word from the New Testament, Hebrews 2 verses 5 through 9, God's word. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels and you will crown him with glory and honor and will put everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. That's for the reading of God's word. May he bless it to us. Let's pray. So the list of bad words today seems to be shrinking That is, the coarse words that used to get an R rating now maybe receive a PG-13. You may have noticed that politicians will now publicly employ profanity where it used to be more unfitting for the office. And yet where some words are coming off the naughty list, actually many more are getting added. The politically correct police love to patrol our language to ticket us on what we can And cannot say anymore. And one of the words that is particularly seemed to be outlawed is submission. To tell someone to submit is now fouler than any curse word. Submit to the government gets a don't tread on me. Kids submitting to parents is sometimes seen as borderline abuse. And worst of all, of course, is wives submit to your husband. Indeed, by and large, submission has become equated with oppression. Submission you should never do, and to make someone submit to you makes you a war criminal of the worst sort. And yet this taboo against submission varies greatly from Scripture. Instead of being tawdry, submission is a noble word in the Bible. In fact, submission leads us to the heart of our salvation— and our eternal destiny. So the author of this epistle just exhorted us in chapter 2, verse 1, to remain attentively anchored in Christ. For if we drift away from the harbor of his great salvation, then there's no escape for the watery abyss that does not end. And yet, as is typical with scripture, God doesn't just drop heavy commandments or laws upon us but rather he encourages us and motivates us to faith and obedience by giving us rationales, affections, and persuasive truths. Thus, the author now continues to lay out the explanation for why we should not neglect Jesus. He imparts to our faith reasons and knowledge. And he does so by keeping up this comparison with angels that he started back in chapter 1. The sun was exalted to the right hand, but God did not subject the world to come to angels. Indeed, the author clarifies here that the coming world has been his focus this entire time. The sun at the right hand, his eternal throne, the divine anointment, changing creation like a ragged sweatshirt, and angels worshiping the sun, this has all been about heaven the coming everlasting glory. This is not about this age. It doesn't refer to the civil government here and now. The exaltation of the Son is not about him transforming society into a better place per se, but it is him putting this age to bed and bringing forth new creation. For this world is passing away and the perfect peace of heaven belongs to the Son. This is, after all, the clear goal and hope for us. The one Christian hope lies not in the here and now, but in the great beyond, in the new heavens and the new earth, where Christ will be all in all, and we will be with him. And it is this heavenly world that God subjected to the Son and not to the angels. And yet, what does it mean that God subjected it to the Son? Well subjection is a twofold act. It lowers and it heightens at the same time. First, in order to lower, the world comes into or the world to come is put under the control, ownership, and authority of another. Second, in order to elevate, it exalts one as Lord and superior. Subjection typically belongs to the realm of kingship. It includes both the exaltation of one as Lord and King and the submission of the world to come as servant and possession. Thus, who is the high King of heaven? To whom does the world to come belong to and serve? Well, it's not to angels. Angels minister to us while we wait for heaven, but angels have no lordship and glory. Rather, the Son is the sovereign King of Heaven. He, or his, is the undying realm of paradise for which we hope and long for. Angels do not control our everlasting destiny. In glory we do not belong to angels or serve them. No heaven lays in the hands of Christ to whom we belong and who we will serve in joy and holiness and to impart supporting evidence for this wonderful truth he next says that god has testified somewhere now testimony is legally binding truth it holds you to account and imposes penalties on you if you ignore or disobey the testimony also by by saying somewhere the author here isn't admitting his ignorance as if he doesn't know where he from where he's quoting instead of the lack of specification, highlights God speaking. By not citing the Psalms or David, the human author, the pristine voice of God rings louder. The point here is not to get distracted by where in the Old Testament he quotes, but to zero in on God testifying to us precious truths and facts. Thus, He refers to God's voice as it's found in Psalm 8. Now Psalm 8 is one of the more well-known psalms and it stands in the company of other great psalms like Psalm 16 or 23 or 110. And this psalm is a hymn of adoration to God for his magnificent creation and governing of the world. Particularly, Psalm 8 marvels how the Lord uses the weak to put an end to all foes and avengers. Thus, in Psalm 8-2, it says that out of the mouth of babies and infants, God ordained strength to conquer his enemies. Now, this is a metaphor for God using unlikely and puny means, infants, to rule over seemingly powerful adversaries. The theme of this psalm is how God subdued the rebellious world by an unexpected agent. How then will the Lord rule and subdue the rancor of this world? Well, he does it through short-lived and small humans. What is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. This compares the feebleness of humans to the vastness of the heavens. In contrast to the size and duration of the moon and the stars, us humans are specks of spit. If we're lucky, we may get a hundred years, but this is barely a second compared to the ageless antiquity of the stars and Venus. Our bodies are soft, squishy, and fragile in comparison to the immovable materials of the constellations. And yet, despite this massive mix-match, the Lord remembers and visits humanity. And this is actually covenantal language. To remember and care for is for the Lord to fulfill his covenant that he made with humanity. That is, God did not covenant with the stars, but he did with the humans. Therefore, this recalls the covenant of works, that original covenant between the Lord and Adam and Eve in the garden, where humans were to rule, fulfill, and subdue the entire creation. God did not promise kingship to the astral bodies, but he did to man. Despite man's insignificant brevity, man was promised by God to become Lord of creation even over the heavenly bodies. The sun and moon may rule the day, but man was destined to reign over the moon and sun. This psalm then, and Hebrews, brings to mind the true covenantal goal for humanity, that the Lord covenanted with Adam to become king of creation. Though despite this lofty divine decree, presently things have gone awry. For now, it says, the Lord made humans lower than the angels. And this word for lowering has no sense of creating or fashioning. Instead, to make lower means to humiliate, to decrease one's status or station. It's to diminish one to the position of being an inferior Thus, this line is not referring to the creation of of men and women, but to the fall. This is the Lord humbling and abasing humans in the fall. So the next two lines are actually future promises. The Lord chastened humans in the fall, but he will crown him with glory and honor, and the Lord will put all things under the feet of man. Despite the humiliation of humanity in the fall, the Lord will fulfill his covenant to make man the glorious king of the cosmos. Therefore, in this psalm, David is praising the Lord that that the failed kingship of Adam will come to success in his own royal office. David understands here that God's covenant with him to have an everlasting throne, that this will accomplish and bring to fruition what was promised to Adam before before he fell into sin. Hence, the term here for glory and honor regularly refer to the kingship of God that he shares with the royalty of David. This means that humanity will enter its God-ordained goal to be kings and queens of creation through the one reign of the Davidic king. This psalm has in mind both the singular throne of David and the universal reign of humanity. By the one reign of David, all redeemed humans will become royals just as as was promised in the original covenant of works. Through the Davidic covenant, the Lord will fulfill that broken covenant with Adam. Thus in this psalm, David sees himself as a second Adam figure. And he understands that by his reign, all foes and enemies of God will be defeated and subdued. The Davidic king will be that infant mouth to silence and cease every last rebel and adversary. Therefore, we can see how well this psalm applies to Christ. Jesus is, after all, the true Davidic heir. The Davidic covenant is yes and amen in him. Thus, the hymn of the psalm that refers to the human monarch of David's uh, David's line is actually applied to Jesus. The promise to put all things under subjection to the king's feet Is the Father speaking to the Son. As true man, as the second Adam, and as the greater David, God is subduing everything under Jesus. Indeed, in this act of subjection, note the author says God left nothing out of control of the Son. There's not a single thing exempted from being under the Son's authority. And yet the sense of this line is actually the rebellious. That is, God permitted nothing to be lawless, rebellious, independent, free, or outside the subduing authority of Christ. And this force of rebellion matches up with Psalm 8, where the enemies of God were being conquered through the mouth of babies. Hence, the authority granted to the Son allows nothing to remain in the state of lawless mutiny. The Father gave Jesus universal dominion so that he will subdue everything beneath him. Of course, the goal of total submission to the Son is not something we experience at the moment. We don't see everything peacefully under Christ. Many foes yet roam this age, enemies still raise their fists to heaven in arrogant defiance, disobedience is widespread, unbelief is pervasive, chaos runs amok, evil plunders, the curse devours, and rebellion is prolific. Indeed, it is beyond obvious that much refuses to be subdued to the sun. Which covers both the wickedness of sinners and the lethal miseries of the curse. Moreover, the hymn here has a twofold referent. Hymn of the Psalm points to Jesus first and foremost, but in light of Psalm 8, the kingship of the One included the royalty of all humans. David's throne brought forth dominion for all his people. Thus, the exaltation of Christ as the one king incorporates us, the saints, to reign with him and in him. Thus, the author is saying here that we don't see everything in subjection to us. We are not yet reigning as the princes and princesses under the singular rule of Jesus. As he said earlier, he's talking about the world to come. The topic is the age of heaven. In heaven, all things in heaven and earth will be in ideal submission to the Son and even to us who belong savingly to him. But as of yet, this has not come to pass. Nevertheless, even though we don't see this perfect peace, there is something we do see. We don't experience ideal submission, but we do know about the one made lower than the angels for a time. Here, the author applies the line from Psalm 8 to Christ. He is the one made lower than angels for a bit. In the psalm, this lower status didn't refer to creation, but to the fall. It was the humbling of humanity under the curse of sin namely death. Thus, in verse 9, the lower state than angels is aligned with Christ's suffering death. The humiliation of the Son, then, includes his incarnation, but its focus is on suffering death upon the cross. Jesus was humbled under death, the curse for our sin. Yet the emphasis for the author here is that we see Jesus. In fact, this is the first time in this epistle that the author drops the personal name of Jesus. And with a loud crescendo, he heralds, we see Jesus. We don't see everything in subjection to Jesus, but we see Jesus. Now, this may strike us as odd as we actually don't see Jesus with our eyes. But as you know, sight in scripture is often a metaphor for certain knowledge and experience. It may not be with our physical eyes, but to see Jesus is to know him without a doubt. This is the assurance of faith, the surety of faith. To see Jesus by faith means we know Jesus as one and sure, as if we could physically behold him with the eye. To see Jesus is to know and love him as the true man and Davidic heir of Psalm 8. Additionally, this seeing Jesus contrasts with what we don't see. We do not witness everything in subjection to him, which included both Jesus and us as his people. Thus, we don't see all things under us, but we do see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. Our faith beholds Jesus at the right hand of the Father. We know for certain that through the gospel proclaimed that Jesus has fulfilled the Davidic covenant, that he's been glorified, and that he's currently reigning on high. You see, this is the tension between Jesus crowned with splendor and foes still in a state of rebellion. At present, wickedness yet prowls and hunts We are still subject to suffering and misery, but Jesus is already upon the throne. He has already won universal dominion and the perfection of heaven. This means that the time for the enemies is running out. With Christ upon the throne, their destruction is set and sure, and it's just a matter of time until that last item is subdued under the sun. And the final foe is death itself, which Jesus has already vanquished. For how did Christ conquer to be enthroned with glory and honor? He did it by suffering death. Because he suffered that icy bite of the grave, he was crowned. The state of being lower than the angels did also, remember, a align with the fall of sin when death entered the world. Thus, by suffering the curse of death, Jesus became both, or conquered both sin and death for us. He obtained resurrection, life to be exalted in heaven. Thus, the author identifies the victory of Jesus with his death, which seems like an infant compared to the mighty powers of evil. Picture here a battlefield that is set and ready On one side there's a vast host of rebellious enemies, armed to the teeth with rippling muscles, the evil one and his minions look unbeatable. And on the other side of the battle line stands one man, Jesus. It is one against the many, an uncountable host versus a single man. How will Jesus win? Well, surely he must have a super sword or some magic power to destroy the massive military of evil. But as Jesus, soon as Jesus steps to the line, he dies. This looks like defeat, not victory. The enemies would be cheering as if they are the winners. And yet it's precisely by the weakness of his death that Jesus conquered all. Jesus vanquished death by dying. He defeated evil by losing. Jesus subdued all by submitting himself unto death. In his submission, Jesus subdued everything. Especially by his dying, Jesus tasted death for us. Jesus died to deliver us from death as the curse for sin. And this tasting of death isn't merely the experience of physical death, but it's the full misery of eternal death. For we will still die physically, but in Christ, even in your death, you will not taste death. For death is ultimately, in its worst penalty, the everlasting wrath of God, being God-forsaken forever, and the torments of hell And these you will by no means experience in Christ. You are completely and eternally freed from that second death. Because Jesus submitted to death willingly and in love for you, you are not subdued under death. And how do we become death free in Christ? As the author points out, by the grace of God. In God's grace, Jesus tasted death for us so that we don't have to. As a free gift, the Father bestows the salvation upon you in Christ. It's not based on your works. It isn't tied you being a little bit more worthy or if you're just a little bit better than others. No, as sinners, we all deserve God's wrath. But in Jesus, we are saved by God's grace. We see Jesus and we will be glorified with Jesus all by the gracious gift of the Lord. And how do we become recipients of this infinite grace? It's by the humility of faith. As we submit to Christ in faith, we become heirs of his kingship. Jesus conquered for us by subduing, uh, by submitting to the curse of sin. And we partake in Christ's victory as we submit to him in faith. Thus, far from being a bad word, submission is the secret to our salvation. By submission, Jesus suffered, died, and was crowned king of heaven. And as we bend the knee to him in faith and devotion, we submit in order to be caught up Into his eternal kingdom. After all, submission is not an option. We either submit now in faith or Christ will subdue our rebellion when he comes again. Therefore, let us rejoice in the gift of submitting to the grace of God in Jesus Christ. With joy, may we trust in him, may we humble ourselves to Christ, and may we rest in him alone for our salvation and eternal life. Thus, with the living hope of Christ's resurrection, may we continue in Christ in faithful submission until we see everything in subjection to him and even to us in the glory of the age to come. Thus, Lord, may he hasten that day and may we cling to him until he comes again. Amen. Let's pray.